All right, lastly, we're going to get to reading God's word. And so we're going to be uh, continuing in the book of Ruth in chapter 1. And so if you would find your place in Ruth chapter 1, and then as we do for the reading of God's word here at Apostles Church, once you have found your place uh, in chapter 1 of Ruth, if you would please stand to your feet, if you are able, uh, for the reading of God's word. I will be starting in verse 6 of chapter 1 and reading to the end. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together on this Lord's Day and to sing songs of worship and to fellowship with one another and greet each other. Lord, also to sit and study your word together. Father, we know that each of us have gathered here in different circumstances in our lives. Each of us have gathered here this morning perhaps even sensing that we're in a different place that with you than others might be. Some of us have gathered this morning from a place of security in the love of God, knowing that our sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. And so this morning we have gathered and we're just excited. We're grateful to belong to you and to know you and to know that your love for us is permanent. 
Father, others perhaps have gathered this morning and and maybe they're a little less certain about your love. Maybe this morning they're feeling guilty. Maybe this morning they're feeling concerned that you're not there for them or maybe they've disappointed you. Father, perhaps others have gathered here this morning and they're not even certain that you exist or if you do exist, that you're good. Lord, regardless of how we might feel as we've gathered this morning, we would ask, Lord, that you would meet each of us right where we're at, that you would speak words of life into our hearts and that God, you would draw faith out of all of us this morning so that we might better grasp who you are and what you've done for us through Christ and that we might surrender the entirety of our being to you because you are worthy and deserving of our eternal loyalty. So Lord, please minister to us through your holy word In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Well, good morning, church. Grateful to be here for another week. You can go ahead and be seated. I love how polite you all are. You want the first thing out of my mouth to be, go ahead and grab a seat. But when I don't say that every week, I see everybody go, like, I'm not going to do it until the pastor says I can sit down. But what a joy to worship together with you. And um, just want to let you know that we've been praying for you this week. Uh, In fact, as leaders in this church, we pray for you every week. Um, But this week in particular, one of the things we've been praying for is for those who maybe are among us this morning that need to return to the Lord. Those who are perhaps among us this morning that you're not where you ought to be with the Lord. Maybe you've never been where you ought to be with the Lord. Uh, We've been praying specifically for you this week that, that God would speak to you, that God would minister to you, and that God would perhaps for the first time in your life, arrest your attention and help you to see how deeply he loves you, how desperately he he wants to care for you and provide for you in your life. And we pray that you would return to him today. The reason that's been so urgent on our hearts is because this passage in front of us today is a passage that is all about return. Um, If you look at the first verse in verse six, we see it right there up front. It says, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. So this idea of return launches us into this section of scripture. And if you look at the last verse in the chapter, verse 22, we see this theme again. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And then as we go through all these verses, you're going to see about 10 times or so that this idea of return recurs. It's the theme of this passage, this idea of a woman and, uh, as we'll see, her daughter-in-law returning to the Lord. Now, last week, for those of you who weren't here, we kicked off this book and we just studied these first five verses before where we started today. And it told us the story of this woman, this Hebrew, this Israelite woman who had gone away from the promised land, had gone away from God's land in Israel because of a famine. And her and her husband, a man named Elimelech, fled to a neighboring uh, kingdom called Moab. And they went there and they planned just to go there for a season to wait out this famine. And they went there and they took their two sons and their sons uh, ended up growing up and dad died, Elimelech dies. And so Naomi just has these two sons and they both marry Moabite women and then they both die without having any children. And so Naomi's been now in Moab for about a decade, actually a little longer than that. And she is far away from 
God's land. And so she is going to be considering returning. Now, the message of the gospel, the the good news of the gospel, the message that we as Christians are called to preach and teach constantly is all about God providing a way for lost people to return to him. That's the good news of the gospel. Again, it's a message about what God is doing to provide a way for lost people to return to him. Because the reality is ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God in the garden way back at the beginning, when they made a conscious decision to disobey the command of God, to take matters into their own hands, ever since that moment, every human being has found themselves alienated from God. Meaning that every person, every man, woman, and child who has ever walked the face of this earth is in need of a return to God, a return to their creator. And what's so awesome about Ruth chapter one here is that from Naomi's experience and Ruth's experience, we're going to learn the dynamics of how that return can take place. Now, as I said, this woman, Naomi, is an Israelite, and she's been out of place for more than a decade. And in a very real sense, her decision now that we just read about to return to Israel is in fact a decision to return to Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for the Lord. In fact, in verse 15, when Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, goes back to Moab, notice in verse 15, Naomi sees that as a return to her gods. You see that in verse 15. So when Orpah goes back to Moab, Naomi interprets that in part as a return to her gods. In the ancient Near East, the way that people thought about deities, the way that they thought about gods was very local. Every kingdom, every area, every region had their own god that they worshipped and that they believed took care of of their needs. So gods were conceived of as being regional gods, if you will. Now the Hebrews are a great exception to this, but other peoples thought of, again, local or regional gods. Now while Naomi was in Moab, that doesn't necessarily mean that she had somehow rejected Yahweh or that she was worshiping Moab's God for the last decade of her life. It also doesn't mean that Naomi believed that Yahweh was only the God of geographic Israel and was somehow not involved in what was going on in Moab. We see in the text that that's not the case. She knew that Yahweh was the true God. But it's important to note this. By voluntarily living in Moab for over a decade, this woman was in a profound sense alienating herself from the people of God from the place of God, and from the provision of God. She was voluntarily, again, alienating herself from the people of God, the place of God, and the provision of God. But, and this is some good news for some of us this morning, because Naomi was a daughter of Israel, God would not let that last forever. He was going to call her home. Interestingly, the word return that you see here over and over again in chapter 1 is the exact same Hebrew word that is used for repent in the Old Testament. 
And it's likely that the author of the book of Ruth is wanting us as readers to pick up on that idea as we consider Naomi's decision to go back to Israel. I titled the message this morning, Returning to the House of Bread. Last week, we talked about being hungry in the house of bread. Bethlehem, the city that she's going to return to, literally means house of bread. And so this week, we're seeing now Naomi returning to the house of bread. And the first thing that we see right up front in verse 6 about this theme that we're talking about, this theme of return, is this. A return requires hearing of God's kindness. A return requires hearing of God's kindness. Notice in verse 6, the, the thing that initiates Naomi's return. Here's what we read. For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. So this woman is working in the fields of Moab. She doesn't have a lot of resources. Again, her husband has died. Her children have died. She's trying to figure things out. And as she's working in the fields, she hears, presumably from a traveler who had come back with this news from Israel, she hears that Yahweh, the Lord, had visited his people and he had given them bread. Now, giving them bread here in verse 6, this is, this is one of only two direct actions attributed to God in the book of Ruth. Here in verse 6, God gives them bread. And then over in chapter 4, toward the end of the book, in verse 13, God gives conception to Ruth. So, so what do we find God actively doing in the book of Ruth, which as we've talked about last week, these are dark, difficult days in her life. What do we see God actively doing? God is actively giving good things to his people. That's what God's doing. God is giving, graciously giving good things to his people. Here in chapter 1, giving food to his people to provide for their needs. In chapter 4, giving a child to the barren Ruth to bless this family and continue this family line. This is what we find God actively doing in the book of Ruth. God is a gracious generous God. Now, Naomi in this field, she hears, as I'm pointing out, she hears of God's kindness and she hears of his provision. And when she hears that message in the field of Moab, something bursts inside of her in her heart. And all of a sudden in her heart, she, she senses this desire to respond and to make her way back to God's land because she wants to take part in the good things that she hears that Yahweh is once again doing for his people. That's the catalyst. She hears about how great God is. She hears about how kind God's being. She hears about the way that God is providing for his people. And again, something is triggered inside of this woman. And she says, I want to take part in that. I want to experience God's goodness. And here I am out in Moab. I'm cut off from the goodness of God. This reminds me of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance or return to the Lord. As with Naomi, it's the news that is announced in the gospel 
of God's kindness toward people who do not deserve it that triggers something inside of us that causes us to come to him and to say, if that's what you're like, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to experience your blessing and your provision. Now, of course, a person does need to be painfully aware or become painfully aware that they're not all right as they are. Just as Naomi realized that she could not just remain in Moab forever. She had to come to that realization. Things are not okay here. I'm, I'm actually separated right now from the goodness of God. As people, we have to understand that because of our sin, we have actively, listen to me, actively contributed to destruction in our own lives and also in the lives of other people. You and I have to own that. Now, you could, you could go talk to a hundred different people with a hundred different beliefs and every single one of them will say, as they look out at the world right now, the world is pretty jacked up. I don't care what they believe. There's nobody who's sitting back right now going, yep, planet Earth is perfect. Everything's awesome right now. This is heaven on Earth. Everybody agrees that planet Earth is jacked up right now. But what we need to understand is that it's not just out there that's jacked up. You have to come to a point in your life where you can look inside and say, it's jacked up in here too. And, and you also have to be able to say, part of the reason why it's messed up out there is because I am participating in messing things up. That's what the Bible describes when the Bible talks about sin. That you and I are active participants in the destruction that is happening in the world, in people's lives, in people's relationships. You have to come to the point, I have to come to the point where I stop glossing over my sins and stop making excuses for my sins and I just say, you know what, I am part of the problem. We have to be able to say that. We have to get to that point. And we also need to understand that God's righteousness requires that God does not minimize our sin. Or even worse, that God does not ignore our sin and act like it's not there. God is not looking out at the earth right now and just going, this is no big deal to me. I don't care that people are killing each other. People are lying to each other. People are stealing from each other. None of that bothers me. God is not indifferent. God is righteous. And therefore, because of his righteousness, God is going to act justly and bring judgment on the earth. We have to understand that. But family, this knowledge that we deserve judgment is not in and of itself enough to bring us to God. In fact, it could actually have the opposite effect. Like, like if I was a teenager, and I'm not just for the record's sake, I know I look like it. If I was a teenager... And I had done something that was so horrific that I knew that my dad would kill me for it. I would never go home. But if I knew that no matter what I had done, my dad loved me, my dad would forgive me, and my dad would help me, I would run home. See, it's the kindness of God that draws us to him. It's the kindness of God that makes us say, 
I want to come to him. I know that he's going to help me. And so when a sinner hears of God's kindness, it becomes the impetus for their returning to him. And so friends, I've got to remind you this morning of God's kindness to us. This is my job as a preacher of the gospel this morning is to remind you of God's kindness toward us. I want to share with you from Titus chapter 3. I preached on this a few weeks ago. Some of you will remember these verses. This is Titus 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So he's talking to the church and he's saying, we used to be jacked up. We used to be messed up. We used to be selfish and inward focused. It was all about me and getting what I want. I was ruled by that. And the outworking of, of that was I was hated by other people and I was hating other people. And that was the way we were living. And then in verse four, Paul says, but when, I love this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, just how God in his goodness appeared in Bethlehem when he visited them, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, verse five, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what God has done for us. Not because we deserved it, Paul says, not because of works done in righteousness. It's not because God looked out at you and said, you know, this one's so good, I'm going to love that one. That's not, that's not the way it works. God's kindness is so amazing that despite our sin, God still came to us in Christ. Jesus came to this earth, bread coming down from heaven in a city called Bethlehem. And Jesus came to this earth and he became our righteousness and he took our place on the cross and he bore our sin and he rose again from the dead and he's alive forevermore to give resurrection life to all who would believe in him. That's his kindness to you. That's his kindness to me. And if you're a Christian here today, there was a point in your life that you heard that message and it triggered something inside of you. And you ran home to God, so to speak. And there might be some this morning that perhaps for the first time you're hearing this and it's triggering something inside of you. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's this woman, Naomi. She hears of God's kindness to her people. And as the head of this desolate little tribe of women, her and her two daughters-in-law, she sets out with them to return to the promised land. But at a certain point on the journey, she turns to the girls and she says to them, you should go back to Moab. What's going on here? Well, Naomi realizes, maybe she's always known it, she was just in denial, that she has nothing to offer her precious daughters-in-law in Bethlehem. She's looking at what she has and she's realized, I, I don't have anything for you girls. And she loves them and they love her. That's very clear in the text. But she's realizing, I just don't have anything to give to you. So seeing that she has nothing to offer, I love this. What she tries to do at first is she just wants to turn them over to the grace of God. 
She's like, go back to Moab. And she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you, specifically by granting that they both find rest in the house of a new husband. Now, this word kindly is really significant. In Hebrew, it's the word hesed. And it means loyalty or kindness. It's the word that describes God's covenant faithfulness. So think of the way that God is faithful to his people. He is perfectly loyal. He shows us perfect kindness. And so this Hebrew word means, again, loyalty or kindness. And it's, in fact, it's what these daughters have shown to Naomi and to her sons this entire time. They are showing her loyalty and they are showing her kindness. And now Naomi knows that she can't show Hesed to them. She has nothing to give to them. So what does she do? She says, Lord, would you show Hesed to these girls for me? I, I can't do it, but Lord, would you be gracious to them? Would you bless these daughters of mine? So she's saying, girls, I've got nothing to give to you. Go back home to Moab. You have my blessing and I'm praying God's blessings over you. And then in verse 10, the girls say, no, we're not going back to Moab. They want to continue on with her. And so in verses 11 through 13, Naomi presses in harder. And she says to these girls, she says, no, seriously, I've got nothing to give to you. And she says, look, even if by some miracle, I as a relatively older woman were able to find a husband, and then even if by a further miracle, I as a relatively older woman was able to conceive. And then if by a further miracle, I was even able to have twins in my womb. And then if by a further miracle, both of the children were males. Even if all of that happened, she goes, girls, my sons would be for a different generation. They, they couldn't be your husbands. I physically and literally have nothing I can give to you. What's going on here? Well, Naomi knows that she can't provide for them, as I've mentioned. And unless they themselves look to Yahweh for their provision, coming to Israel is going to be a disaster. She's saying, look, I can't give you anything. And unless you yourselves look to Yahweh, then coming to Israel, it'll be a complete disaster for you. To put this differently, Naomi is challenging these girls to count the cost. And when we're talking about the theme of return, we need to understand that a return requires counting the cost. In other words, Naomi doesn't think her daughters-in-law understand the gravity of what they're committing to if they continue with her to Bethlehem. See, if they were to return to Moab, they're young enough, they could go back to their dad's house, to their father's home. They're also young enough that they would likely be able to be remarried. They would probably be able to have children and have that kind of picture-perfect life, the equivalent of the spouse and the two children and the white picket fence. Okay, they, they can go back to Moab. They can get the life that they probably dreamed of when they were little girls. But if they come to Israel, <clears throat> they're going to be foreigners. And, and the, the likelihood of them getting married in Israel is going to be very very small, and Naomi can't take care of them. In a way, Naomi is challenging her daughters like Jesus challenged all who considered following him during his ministry. Here's Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, you've got to be all in. Because guess what? In following Jesus, sometimes that's going to mean that family actually hates you for it. It's going to mean that those who are closest to you actually reject you. And Jesus is saying, you've got to, you've got to factor that in. Count the cost. He goes on, he says, if anyone comes to me, Oops, I already read that part. Verse 27, he says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Jesus concludes, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I know a guy who joined the Marines when we had just gotten out of high school. And after completing basic training and the first time I was able to see him, he, he was telling me that he wanted to drop out of the Marines so badly. He was trying to find a way out of it. <clears throat> and I was like, why? What happened? And he was like, I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. He said, I didn't realize it was going to be so hard. And I was like, dude, you signed up for the Marines. Like, you've never seen the commercials, the few, the strong. Like, you, you didn't know what you were getting yourself into. You, you didn't count the cost before you just signed the dotted line for the next four or six years of your life? Don't be that guy. <laughs> Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to follow after me, you need to count the cost. You need to understand that there is a cost involved. And following Jesus may mean a very different life than the life that you've been envisioning for yourself. For these girls, if they were going to follow Naomi and by extension, follow Naomi's God, it was going to mean that very likely they would never marry. Very likely they would not have children. Very likely they would not have the futures that they had wanted and that they had imagined for, imagined for themselves. And so we need to understand that if we're going to follow Jesus, it will include a cross. But as we'll see in this story, the reward is always greater. I've said before, Jesus never promised the Christian life would be easy only that it would be worth it. I think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, Paul had a lot of suffering. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Naomi here, challenges these daughters that she loves to count the cost. And here's how they respond in verse 14. We read this. They lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. These two daughters-in-law had opposite responses. Orpah decides to go home to Moab, and Ruth stays. And that decision of Ruth, this decision to stay, reveals to us one final key to this theme of returning. A return requires acting in faith. Acting in faith. Now, on one level, you can read Ruth's declaration in these verses as 
a daughter-in-law's loyalty to her mother-in-law, that she's just not going to abandon her. She's not going to leave her. And that's certainly true. But to the original readers, they would have understand that something more is going on. What Ruth says here demonstrates that Ruth is herself committing her life to Naomi's God. That Ruth herself is declaring her allegiance to Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel. In verse 16, specifically, Ruth says, Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth is aligning herself with the people of God, and she's embracing him as her Lord. We know that because the language that she uses here is very significant. If you read the Old Testament, when the Lord made a covenant with his people, he used this exact same language. Listen to a couple of examples. Here's Exodus 6, where God promises that he's going to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. Here's what he says. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Or here's Leviticus 26, 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So Ruth here is expressing her desire to be a member of the covenant community. Notice too in verse 17 that Ruth calls God by his covenant name. She says, as she swears an oath, she says, May the Lord... Okay, that's not the generic term for God, Elohim. It's the covenant name of the Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. And she is calling the Lord Yahweh. She is calling on him using his covenant name. Finally, in chapter 2, when Boaz, who we haven't met yet, but he's going to be this awesome Christ-like figure, when he meets Ruth, he's already heard her testimony going around in the town gossip. And he says to Ruth on his first encounter with her in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That expression of coming under the Lord's wings, seeking refuge under his wings, is used in the Old Testament to describe a person who is in covenant with the Lord. Here's Psalm 17.8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. So this woman, Ruth, is very clearly expressing that she is putting her faith in Yahweh, that she's declaring him to be the Lord of her life. It's a conscious decision to embrace him. And in verse 17, we see her firmness and her resolve. She swears this oath. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more, essentially, if I break this covenant. If I break this promise. So she's swearing an oath. And then also we see that she's making this a lifelong commitment in verse 17. She says to her mother-in-law, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Now who's going to die first? Naomi or Ruth? Presumably Naomi, right? So after Naomi died, Ruth could have bailed and gone back home to Moab if things weren't working out. But she says, where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. She is expressing a lifelong commitment. I'm staying here in the promised land. I'm going to follow Yahweh forever. Now, I said a return requires acting in faith, not a decision of faith. And that was very um, intentional. Now, of course, you cannot act in faith without first making a decision of faith. 
But there is a sense in, where you, in which you can make a decision of faith without acting on it. And I fear that many have. Notice Ruth didn't just say here in this text, I believe. Notice that Ruth didn't just say, I will follow. Notice that she didn't just have a momentary or fleeting confession of faith on the road from Moab in this emotionally charged moment. No, what we see in this story is that she actually acts on it. She actually turned her back on Moab and she went to Bethlehem. And friends, that's a great picture of what biblical faith looks like. Did you know that there is a kind of faith that cannot save you? James, the brother of Jesus, calls it a faith without, anybody know? Faith without works. Or a faith with no action. In James chapter 2, James actually even says, listen, the demons believe in God. Right? The demons are not atheists, friends. They've seen the Lord. They know God is real. They're just actively rebelling against him. And so James makes a case in his letter that what is required in order for you to actually have a relationship with God and to actually be saved is more than just intellectual assent to a doctrine or to say, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus is real. The demons believe that much. What is requir- required for a person to be saved is a faith that acts. A faith that actually says, I believe Jesus is Lord and therefore I am going to act like he is. That's what biblical faith looks like. Jesus explained even that some people would hear the word, the good news of his kindness. And this is in Matthew 13. He says, and they would immediately receive it with joy. So there are some people that they have this moment where they go, yeah, that sounds right. I want to follow Jesus. They receive it with joy. And Jesus says, yet they have no root. And so they fall away. Even more terrifyingly, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says that not everybody who calls him Lord is going to enter the kingdom of God. Think about that. We're always wondering, does this person believe that Jesus is the Savior? Or that this person, does this person believe that Jesus is Lord? Jesus says, look, there's going to be a lot of people that would say that to you. Yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord. And they're not going to go to heaven. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what I'm saying to you, family, is that saving faith is not just, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Or yeah, Jesus is the boss. Saving faith is the kind of faith that believes that Jesus is Lord so much that they actually treat him like he is. I've illustrated it like this before. I remember when my boys were first getting into pools with me, maybe two years old or so, a year and a half, and standing on the side of the pool and dad's in the water. And I would say to them, jump to me, jump. And they'd stand on the edge of the pool and they'd look and they're just not so sure, right? They're kind of nervous. And I would use this language. I would say, trust me, trust Eddie, I'll catch you. Now, the proof that they actually trust me is what? If they jump, right? What am I supposed to think if they go, no, 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 daddy, I really trust you and turn around and walk away from the pool. Obviously, they didn't trust me. True faith, if I really trust in something, I'm going to act on it. I'm going to jump. And in the same way, it's not just about saying Jesus is Lord. It's responding to that in actions of faith. Notice that Ruth, 
makes this conscious decision to trust in the Lord on the road somewhere between Moab and Israel, but that decision led to a series of actions. First, she gets to Bethlehem, to the people of God, and she makes her testimony known. Again, we know that because Boaz had heard it. And significantly, family, this is what Christians do through baptism. Think about it. Through baptism, you are going to the people of God and you're going in front of the people of God and you are making your testimony known. I believe in Jesus. I have surrendered my life to Jesus. I am declaring to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. That's what we're saying in baptism. I wonder this morning, have you done that yet? Have you been baptized? Well, no, I'm waiting for the right time. Or no, I I don't like getting in water. I'm like a cat, anti-water. Or no, I don't like being the center of attention. I'm just not that kind of a guy, Daniel. Well, friend, I would ask you, if your faith won't even move you to be baptized in obedience to Jesus' commands, what kind of faith is that exactly? Notice that after arriving in Bethlehem, not only did Ruth share her testimony, but she integrated with God's people and dwelt with them for the rest of her days. In the same way, when a person trusts in Jesus, they become a, bo- a part of his body, which is the church. And God tells the members of his body to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So in faith, we respond to what God tells us to do. I would ask you this morning, are you a part of the church? Are you a part of the church? Do you regularly join with the family of God? Or do you not commit to the church, belong to the church? Are you integrating your life with the lives of other members of God's family? Now, of course, Ruth would be called to respond in faith in many other ways throughout her life as a follower of the Lord. But these are the initial steps. We too are called to respond in faith in many other ways. But these are the initial steps. A return to the Lord requires a conscious decision in our hearts and a true decision in our hearts will manifest itself in actions of faith. Well, let's end our time now where the story ends. This, as I've said, is a story of return. And this text ends with Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem. But much is left unresolved here. We know God has shown kindness to his people in general, but it, me- it remains to be seen whether or not he's going to show kindness to these two women. And even Naomi is uncertain. When the townswomen saw her, they said, oh my gosh, is that Naomi? They recognized her. And Naomi's response is, don't call me that. Don't call me that. Life has been too hard to me to call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Her time in Moab was not pleasant. The path that the Lord has brought her through has been one that is a bitter path, a challenging path. And life has changed her. The cards she's been dealt don't match the name pleasant. So she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. It's important to note that Naomi is no atheist. She acknowledges that it was the Lord's doing, that he gives and takes away, that Yahweh is in control of everything. She acknowledges that God is the only ultimate force in the universe. So she says, call me Mara. My path has been bitter. At this point in her journey, all she can do is acknowledge 
her loss. Look at verse 21. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now that's so significant. I'm, I'm wrapping up right here, but this is so significant because she left because she thought she was empty. She left to go find some food in Moab with her husband. And now after journeying there and coming back to Bethlehem, what's her commentary on her experience in Moab? She says, you know what? Actually, as I evaluate my life now, I was full when I took off from Bethlehem and I'm coming back empty. Now she's not coming back materially rich. She's, she's coming back broke. But when she left, she had what actually matters in life. She had the relationships of those who were closest to her. It's a good check for all of us here. She says, I left, I was full. I had a husband, I had sons. I had a future, I had promise, and I'm coming home empty-handed. Isn't that statement the perfect commentary on all of those who have ever thought as they sat inside the church, the grass is greener on the other side. And I look at my own sons and I just think, I, I just want them to get it. The grass is not greener on the other side. Fullness is found in the presence of the Lord and in the house of God. The prodigal son had to figure that out. And so many other prodigals have had to figure that out. The grass is greener. Guess what? When you think that and you go there, the commentary of your life is going to be, you know what? When I left, that's actually when I was full. And now I'm coming back empty. So as we end chapter one, we have to ask if maybe, just maybe, Naomi and Ruth will find fullness from God now that they've returned to the house of bread. The last verse hints that it may be so. Notice the very last line, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter one began with a famine and it ends with a harvest. And because of God's grace, that's exactly how Naomi and Ruth's story is going to end. They began in famine here, but they will end in harvest. And family, because of God's grace, all of us who have heard of God's kindness, counted the cost, and placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that's exactly how our stories are going to end too. It might not look that way right now, but an eternal harvest is right around the corner. So be encouraged this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of infinite kindness. We, like Naomi and her family, have oftentimes, many times, made decisions that actually alienated us from you and your grace and your provision. Many times in our lives, we, like sheep, have gone astray. And yet, Lord, you have reached out to us in kindness, preeminently through the work of your son, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. And so, Lord, this morning, we once again want to respond in faith, trusting in you, abiding with you, being in your presence, and seeking all that we need for this life and the life to come in you and you alone. Lord, help our hearts and help our lives to be firmly rooted in you. Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. And I pray that we would constantly derive all of our nourishment from you. Lord, I also pray for any who have joined us this morning 
That if they're being honest with themselves before you right now, they would admit, I need to return to the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you draw them to return to you now? Would they put their faith in you today, choosing to follow Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord? And Lord, I pray that that decision would produce actions of faith in their lives that they would begin following after you day in and day out, that they would get baptized in our presence in the near future, that they would join this church body and begin to integrate their lives with ours as followers of Jesus the Christ. So Lord, would you save some in our midst even this morning? Would your kindness lead them to repentance today? Oh Lord, we ask that you would save. We love you, Jesus. We are so thankful for your love for us. And we worship you because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.